Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Hello, and welcome to tonight's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Mina Kim. I'm host of Forum's 10 a.m. hour on KQED. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Jen Gunter, a board-certified OBGYN and pain medicine doctor with more than three decades of experience. She's known worldwide for her advocacy to empower women with medical facts about their health. Dr. Jen is the best-selling author of The Vagina Bible and The Menopause Manifesto, and her newest book is called Blood, The Science of Medicine and Mythology of Menstruation. Dr. Jen, I want to welcome you now to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, I have really been looking forward to this conversation. First, because I have long appreciated just your really clear, always fact-based, and also always positive approach to talking about our bodies, which I think is sorely needed, especially when we are going in to talk to doctors about some of the most difficult things that we are experiencing. And you've done that as well as a guest on Forum for our listeners But the other reason that I was really excited to talk with you is because I really know far less than I should about the menstrual cycle. And your book made that really clear. And until I read it, I still thought, for example, that there was some truth to the idea that menstrual cycles could sync up with other people's if you were around them enough. And I mean, it's not like that never happens, but it's myths like that, that, I mean, where do you think they're rooted in? Why do you think we believe in something like that? And why do you think they're so persistent? Well, I think myths always have like a, they're sort of truthy. They sound like they should be right. So I think they ring true to us from that standpoint. And a lot of them, especially menstrual myths, have been around for a very long time because we didn't have good science and biological ways to talk about the body. So it was sort of rooted in myth. And if you want to think about, if you go back a thousand years, there was myths about the brain and, you know, they didn't understand the body the way we do, but because there's so much shame for talking about, you know, especially a female body and especially the menstruation aspect of things, that's, you know, when you can't talk about something, if that's when all the myths and mythology really take over and if it seems like it's something shameful, who are you going to ask about it, right? You're just going to sort of believe what you hear. So there's all kinds of ways that people come to believe this. And of course, I would guess that the average person graduates grade 12, knowing more about frog biology than human biology. No shade to animal physiology. It's important, but just saying. Yeah. Well, it does feel like though, with menstrual myths or ideas about them in particular, that they're very crazy. (laughs) The notion you write about the notion that people who menstruate, this is like an idea that I want to say was like way back when, but actually was in 1974, that people who menstruate could wilt plants, could wilt flowers. Could you just talk about that? Right. Well, so there's this been a very long standing belief that the menstrual cycle was a way to get rid of toxins. So the historical belief was that 
women were inferior biologically to men. And the fact that we menstruated was proof of that because we couldn't manage our fluid dynamics. We had to have basically an off-flow valve. That was kind of how they thought about it. And they believed that every tissue was moist. And so this dates back to like the four humors and everything's about balance, right? You've got to balance the black bile, the yellow bile, the blood, you know, all these things are in balance. And so menstruation was a sign of no balance. So if you're thinking about it with that model that you have toxins and humors and things like that, you can kind of see how that was believed historically, although you know, obviously there probably was objective evidence to prove otherwise. So, you know, they believe menstruating women could take the silver off of mirrors. And then when, of course, you got menopause, you that was a toxic state because you weren't getting rid of those toxins anymore. And so these things have stayed around. And of course, if we had the power to do things like take silver off mirrors and wilt crops, that would have been a superpower, right? Like you could have brought a nation to its knees. Sorry, no crops this winter because yeah, we've decided no. So clearly not true, but they've had these really strong social and cultural impacts. They've been used to justify essentially the subordination of women, which you talk about. I'm wondering if you could walk us through a little bit of the ways that this idea that menstrual blood is toxic has translated into certain actions and behaviors against women, people who menstruate, female bodies, and so on. Yeah. So it's kind of the root of the patriarchy. This is the proof that the female body is inferior. So seeing the body that way, you know, has led to all different kinds of offshoots in different cultures and different religions. So for example, women not being allowed to prepare food, not being able to touch food when they're menstruating, having to leave their own house when they're menstruating, not being allowed to go to religious services or having to take like ritual cleansings after their period. So it's okay for their husband to touch them. So all of these things are part of it. And it's all about othering women, if you will. It's about saying that you're dirty, that the, your very essence is dirty. And of course, it doesn't make any sense, even if you don't look at it with our modern biology. If you think that, you know, the ancients knew that an embryo grew in the uterus, if that was really very toxic, that wouldn't be like a great place for an embryo, would it? Yeah. Do you think that the difficulty that so many have in accessing menstrual products and the cost of menstrual products is also connected to this? Yeah, of course, because, you know, if every single person menstruated, nobody would think twice about having free menstrual products in bathrooms, right? Nobody thinks twice about having free toilet paper. We all need it. We go to the bathroom, right? Nobody would think twice about that. So it's a way to marginalize people. And of course, if you look, women are the half of the population that are more likely to be financially insecure, more likely to have a more difficult time paying that. And then if you think about the fact that these products in many places are still taxed as a luxury tax, right? So this is something that you have to use. There isn't a choice. And by the way, if we didn't all menstruate, then none of us would be here. So everybody has profited from the menstrual cycle. Yeah. So this is a lot of money. And, you know, there are many people who have financial insecurity that can't afford these products or, you know, they may have to stay home from school or the shame of leaking onto your clothes or the cost of extra laundry. And so all of these things add up. And so I, I personally think that that one, they shouldn't be taxed, but two, they should really be free. You were just talking a little bit ago about how we know more about frog biology than we do about the menstrual cycle, even though 72 million women and people who menstruate experience this in the U.S. Um, and I think one of the things that was so shocking to me about the lack of education 
was really during, especially the pre-end of Roe debates when people were talking about legislating abortion bans, how little they seemed to know actually about how female bodies function, like how fertilization is experienced or how pregnant bodies do it, right? And how this lack of broadly understood knowledge has been contributing to the justification of these kinds of highly restrictive policies in our country. And I think there is this idea that, oh, learning about menstruation would enable us to have more thoughtful policies about the kinds of things that we put out there, like abortion bans, for example. But in reading your book, absolutely, it sounds like. Yeah. So I think there's kind of two points there. One, I personally think that people making those legislation, they don't actually care about what what's facts. And I mean, I have personal experience from in the 1990s when I lived in Kansas calling a politician at home to get permission to do an abortion for someone who needed one medically uh, because it was illegal at our medical center based on a law this person had written. And when I said to him, explain, I started to explain the medical situation. He said, oh, just do what you think is right, doctor. Because they, they didn't care. It's all of it. So they don't care. I think that where having knowledge would come into play would be for the people who do care. So they can challenge this more aggressively because I don't believe anybody who's trying to make abortion illegal or trying to restrict access to medication abortion actually cares because if they cared, they would want these products because they reduce maternal mortality. So, you know, if you're truly pro-life, you would want them. So I think that it, where it would be very useful would be so these things get stopped earlier. So there's there's people actively, you know, rising up in politics saying, this is absolutely ridiculous. You know, we, this is completely not factual. And I think what happens is these things start in politics in the whoever decides they're going to start with a bill. And, and then it sort of runs away. And then all of a sudden it becomes this bigger thing that's harder to undo. And I think also if more reporters, more journalists had this information, they'd be able to challenge these politicians and be much more aggressive at pushing back. And of course, if the electorate knew then they'd be like, well, you know, would you vote for someone who said the sun rains green fire on the earth? Well, no, you wouldn't because you'd be like, why are they even saying? But when I hear what they're saying about the reproductive tract, that's what it sounds like to me. It's so ridiculous. So if more people knew it was that ridiculous, I think hopefully they'd be laughed out of office. Yeah, there are so many consequences of not being able to learn about and speak really about menstruation. And, and that's one of the purposes of this conversation as well is You've written this book that has also provided a lot of scientific information about the menstrual cycle as well, just so that people can be armed with the kind of information that they need to be able to advocate for themselves in their own doctor's offices or conversations with people who are related to their health. So let's talk about those. Could you talk about why we menstruate, what it really is and why we've evolved to do it? There are only a very few select species that menstruate. All other animals have estrus. So horses, dogs, you know, cats, they all have estrus. So thing what estrus is that's different. So estrus is basically seasonal breeding, if you will. So the, the big difference is between estrus and the menstrual cycle is this biological phenomenon known as spontaneous decidualization. So what happens as the uterine lining starts to get ready for a potential implantation, you release hormones, it gets thicker and thicker and thicker. 
And for an early embryo to survive, it has to be in very specialized tissue. And that specialized tissue is called decidua. With the menstrual cycle, that process of triggering decidualization only happens after ovulation. So it's the progesterone released by by your body that triggers a decidualization. And that's called spontaneous decidualization. And so if you ovulate, that's great. It happens. And if it doesn't, then you don't get an implantation. But with animals that have an estrus cycle, it's induced decidualization. So the embryo touches the decidua, touches the lining of the uterus, and then that triggers the decidual reaction. So with estrus, there's very little choice about getting pregnant. If there is an embryo there and there's been some of the right biological soup, if you will, that's going to implant. But with humans, Because we have such aggressive placentas, we have all these sort of unique things that go along with us, we need to have this big, thick, decidualized endometrium ready, kind of like a catcher's mitt, if you will. Um, And otherwise, the embryo could invade too deeply. The other thing the human decidua does is that it actually acts like a bit of a biological sensor. So if it detects a very abnormal embryo, it can actually trigger an early miscarriage. And that's when we talk about, when we hear people challenge these politicians and say 70 to 80% of early pregnancies don't even happen, it's because the decidua is actually mounting an immune response to, you know, to try to help improve the chances of offspring because getting a human pregnancy to the age of eight or nine, when it can look after itself, right, is a massive biological effort. So you're not just talking about the pregnancy. Then you have to survive the delivery. Then you have the breastfeeding and then you have the nurturing versus, you know, if you're a giraffe, the giraffe falls, whatever five feet gets up and it's able to walk. So, so we have this different investment. And so if you think about menstruation, it's about resource curation. Some animals have litters, so they can do resource curation that way, right? So it's a different, it's a whole different kind of setup. And so with humans, so now you have this big, thick catcher's mitt in and pregnancy didn't happen. So now what do you do? You have to get rid of it for the next cycle to start. Because it's a thickened change in the tissue, your body can't reabsorb it. It's not, you'd need like a digestive tract to deal with that. So the only way to get rid of it is to dump it. And so that's the difference. If you have an estrous cycle and a pregnancy didn't happen, that decidualization hasn't occurred. So the lining can be reabsorbed. So you want to get rid of it. You want to dump it. You need to, when progesterone is withdrawn, get all these chemical changes that cause that layer to peel off. And then you start bleeding from those open blood vessels and the blood pushes out the lining and that's menstruation. It's pretty incredible that we do this every 24 to 35 days. We have to go through this incredible process. And you highlight the fact that it is actually quite a taxing process, but that evolution determined that it was good enough. What do you mean by good enough? We have this really interesting concept, especially now that natural is best and nature knows everything. And it's like, no, like nature gives us cancer, like nature doesn't care. And so when you think about the biological toll of menstruation, you think about the blood loss, you think about the pain that's there because of the mechanisms to stop bleeding. All of these things, like if you and I were sitting down and designing menstruation, we'd be like, okay, we need to take this pain out of it. And we need to take this blood loss. Like this doesn't seem like the best design, 
but nature doesn't care. Evolution's like good enough, slap you on the back, out the door. Most of you will manage. And so that's kind of the thing. It's nature doesn't have that investment in the individual. It's in sort of the group. And so, yeah, so there's this massive biological toll. In addition to the pain of menstruation, there are these other diseases that are very unique. So for example, endometriosis, where you get lining that's similar to the lining of the uterus that grows outside. And we still have very little understanding about what that is, despite it affecting about 10% of the population. And for some, it can cause infertility. For some, it can cause severe pain. Others, it can cause heavy bleeding. And others, it doesn't cause any symptoms at all. And we don't understand that. Uh, We don't know if it's one disease or a bunch of different diseases. There's polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's one of the most common endocrine abnormalities, and we still don't really understand the basics of it. We know there's higher levels of androgens, which are thought of classically as the male hormones, but we all have testosterone too. So higher levels of testosterone and irregular ovulation, and many people have abnormalities in insulin levels. We still don't really understand that very well. And so we have these things that affect a massive number of the population and very little funding to actually study them. Never mind, you know, the fact that we know that, you know, many medical conditions can be worsened with the fluctuation of the menstrual cycle. For example, migraines, people with different autoimmune conditions can notice flares. And so, so there's all this kind of offshoot of this biological wiring. Yeah. This biological wiring that, as you say, doesn't really care if it's super uncomfortable for us. But also at the same time, I think the way you describe it was that essentially the cycle uh, turns the wheel of life or wheel of humanity. Can, can we just take a moment to appreciate how important it is for yeah. our species? So <laughs> like, you know, getting back to what we were saying earlier that, you know, we have these big, thick, specialized, the big, thick, specialized decidua to handle these big, thick, invasive placentas. And these big, thick, invasive placentas help us get tons of blood flow so we can have big brains, right? The fact that we've had our natural selection from this decidua that's allowed us to basically select for embryos that are going to survive has allowed us to have these, you know, to increase in intelligence, to sort of have all of this kind of natural selection. I mean, obviously natural selection is the same. It happens with every species, but but menstruation has been a big part of that story. And so kind of my thesis is if we didn't have the menstrual cycle, we'd have evolved very differently. So every single thing we have here is really the result of menstruation. If you're born, it's because somebody had a menstrual cycle. You know, if you are watching this on on your computer at home, the person that built that computer is was here because of a menstrual cycle. And yet this is, we're punishing people for it. So yeah, we're not appreciating it and putting people who do this for us on equal footing in our society. But yes, as you say, drives the wheel of... uh is the wheel that drives humanity. The menstrual cycle is the wheel that drives humanity, I think is the way that you put it. Um, but I do want to ask you about some of the discomforts and why research or whatever research has been done on the menstrual cycle. And we can talk about how little research has been done on this, but um, why it does come with certain things. So one of the things that I've always wondered about is PMS. Like, why do we get it, right? <laughs> When yeah. does it happen? Why do we get it? So, so the 
the the PMS, for those who, who don't know, premenstrual syndrome is a constellation of symptoms that happen in the second half of the menstrual cycle during the luteal phase when your body's producing progesterone. And after ovulation, essentially. Yeah, after ovulation, exactly. If the symptoms start before ovulation, they can't be PMS by definition. And they have to go away with menstruation. And so it's a constellation of symptoms. Many people describe mood changes, feeling depressed, feeling hopeless, feeling angry, having more rage, having bloating, feeling um, swelling, you know, swelling their feet and ankles. So those types of symptoms, that kind of constellation of symptoms, that's kind of unpleasant and moodiness, maybe food cravings as well could be part of that. And we believe it's related to progesterone and we don't quite understand why. Uh, there are lots of hypotheses, but it's fascinating that it can be treated with contraception that stops ovulation, but it can also be treated with antidepressants. So some antidepressants. And so whether it's the hormones triggering the depression, and so that's why you can treat it with either the hormones to stop the hormone trigger or use antidepressants to start what stop they were triggering. But it's, you know, along the same way that, you know, we know that there are certain people who are more likely to get uh, postpartum depression, right? And again, so there's sort of like hormonal vulnerability, I suspect, to the brain. That's a good way to kind of describe it. And how that's changed over time, it's so hard to know because, of course, if you look at writings from 100 years ago, Everybody was hysterical. Everybody was, you know, a complainer, you know, so, so you can't track that through time in the same way you can track someone talking about a broken leg, for example. So there's all kinds of difficult ways to know, has this been there through the beginning of time? Is this something that has changed? Is this something that is increasing for different reasons that we don't understand? I don't think we have those answers yet. But yeah, it's a very real phenomenon. A lot of people get dismissed and there are things that can be helpful. You mentioned hormonal contraception can be helpful. You mentioned antidepressants, but are there over-the-counter remedies that you have found to be effective to help ease those kinds of symptoms? Well, there's a few that I list in the book and and people can certainly, you know, read through them. I'm always hesitant because the studies aren't very good. And so I always think that people should learn about those in that context. So it's one thing to say, you know, yeah, we have got great randomized trials for this or for that, but we don't with over-the-counter supplements. And so it's really important for people to kind of know what those come with. So the standardization isn't the same. You don't necessarily know what you're taking. Um, and the studies aren't really as good. And for some people, that's okay. Some people say, I don't care that it's not as well studied. I'm going to try Chase Berry. And other people say, you know, I really want something with good evidence-based medicine. And so I'm not necessarily opposed to these kinds of therapies, but I think that is very important that people understand them in the for all they are, like warts and all, right? So that... If you're okay taking a therapy that is really not studied or well-studied at all, that, that's okay, but that's your choice. And you're making it with an informed decision because you knew all about that. So again, you knew the warts and all. Do you want to take a moment just to help us understand how little of, say, the U.S.'s you know NIH budget is devoted to studying issues related to the menstrual cycle? Relative to yeah, I mean, it's like pennies on the dollar when you compare to other diseases that also affect people in very serious ways. And I think one of the examples I gave, and I think I have the numbers correctly, but, you know, basically endometriosis is $2 per person a year and, you know, Crohn's disease is 30. And these are diseases that both can have massive effects on 
quality of life, can result in major surgeries, can really be life altering in many ways. And certainly when I was a medical student, we had very little treatment for people with Crohn's disease and they really suffered. And now we have these amazing other drugs that help many people. And I'm sure there's still people whom they don't help. And there's still people who have, have really severe disease, but we don't have any new classes of drugs for endometriosis compared to when I was a medical student, right? There's no whole new class that opened up that then started this whole branching tree of different therapies and different ideas. We're using the same treatments that we used in the 1990s when I was a resident. So I think that's what happens when you have very little attention. And then a lot of the budget for women's health goes to pregnancy. And I'm like, well, everybody benefits from pregnancy. That's not just like a you know, a woman's issue. That's everybody's issue. And again, studying diseases in pregnancy, very important. Having healthy children, very important for society. But it makes it seem like the funding might be bigger than it is, but we need many more studies, not just for diseases that uniquely affect you if you have a reproductive tract, but lots of the studies done for hypertension done on men, lots of the studies. You know, I just read an article today in the New York Times that I didn't even know this. It's always new things you're finding out about how um, heart surgery, like bypass surgery, you hear about cabbage, right? How women have worse outcomes. And I was like, what? I know about that. Completely different. Um, and then you think it makes sense because, oh, they have smaller veins, so it might be harder to graft. There may be other biological reasons. And so that's important information to know about how, like, I've been in medicine my whole life and I just realized that now, I mean, I'm not referring anybody for open heart surgery, but you get to the point that it starts to touch everything. And then you think, oh, they have smaller blood vessels. Well, that, that makes perfect sense that, you know, that might be harder. And then some women have therapies to treat their varicose veins, but then, so then when, if they need open heart surgery, that affects the veins that they might have to use to harvest, to do the open heart surgery. So if you're going in to have your varicose veins treated, are you actually getting informed about that? You know, would that might make a difference for you? So all of these things. And of course, if you don't think to ask the question and don't think to do the studies, you're never going to get the answer. So we don't really know what we don't know. I mean, we also know that that women are less likely to get transplants than than men. Men are more like, you know, women are more likely to donate an organ for a transplant, and they're also less likely to receive one to men. Yeah, got we did a whole show about the organ transplantation or organ donation system. And it's a pretty complicated system. All that's the nicest word I think I can come yeah. with for it at this moment. But, um, but it also leads to, you know, certain guidelines for, you know, maintenance and health related to your body that may or may not be right. So for example, now we don't need to have an annual pelvic exam. Why not? Because I definitely remember the years yeah. when I was told I had to go in for that exam every year, you know. So I know. So that's pretty patriarchal, right? Like, hey, little lady, you need to come in for an exam every single year because you can't possibly be trusted to notice if something's changing about your body. We don't need men to do that. Some of that was because we used to do annual pap smears. So back in the day when I trained, when I was a medical student, we did pap smears once a year. We didn't understand the biology of cervical cancer and how it became cervical cancer in the way that we know now. And we couldn't have, you know what? We didn't have PCR technology. So as new technologies come, we learn new things. 
the idea that HPV was the cause of cervical cancer was a hypothesis when I was a medical student. And now we have a can, we have a vaccine that can prevent it. They just released data from, I think it was Scotland where if women were fully vaccinated, they had a 0% risk of cervical cancer. And that's like my lifetime. So that shows what money can do, right? Money and research. So we used to think people need to come every year. So that's how that came about. And then there was this patriarchal idea that, well, we need to see you for your pap smear to give you your contraception prescription, which of course is very patriarchal because what's the message there? So if you don't come for your pap smear, then you should have an unplanned pregnancy. Like what? what's the lesson? How is that helping? So there's that. And then we started to realize that we were doing too many pap smears because it was picking up too many subtle abnormalities that would go away on their own. And then HPV testing started to come in and we started to realize that we could be better at predicting who was going to have an abnormality or not. And now we're moving to possibly being exclusive HPV testing because you have to have HPV to get cervical cancer. You don't have it. You, you know, that's the precursor. And there are some places, for example, in British Columbia and Canada, they're um, going to be doing home HPV testing. They're going to mail them to people, uh, which is amazing because there are lots of people who can't take time off work, who live far away, who've had bad experiences at the doctor's office. And they're going to give people the choice to come in and, and have the, the test in the office. But studies don't actually show that an annual exam picks up much. And so the actual kind of looking at the vulva, the the feeling the organs inside that it's not a good tool. It's a false reassurance. So, so that's why that's been dropped. The one thing I'll say though, I do think that regular connection with a healthcare provider is valuable. And so while I don't think people need to come in for an annual exam, I would certainly be in favor of having an annual telephone visit because Sometimes people don't know what abnormal is because if you've never been taught, how would you know? So one of the examples in the book is if you don't know you have heavy periods, how would you know? Like I didn't know I had super heavy periods. I was soaking the bed. I didn't know they were heavy because my mother told me that's what it was like. So I, okay. And I was like, I can't believe people live like this. So it's good to ask questions like, are you gushing blood? Are you soaking the bed? Are you needing to double up on pads and tampons? It's, you know, things like that. So to have that educational opportunity um, and to then to get to know your provider, because you know what? It is more intimate to go in for a pelvic exam than it is to go in to have your blood pressure checked. It just is. So if you've talked to that provider a few times, then if you have a problem, you're probably more likely to feel comfortable going in. So that's my I have no evidence to back that up, but from 30 years of experience, I still think that it would be really good for people to have an annual kind of phone check-in to talk about what's going on health-wise, just to make sure it's all okay. Yeah. You mentioned how technological advances have helped us realize what a public exam is helpful for and what it isn't, right? And enable us to be able to do things at home. There is a piece of technology or actually digital tracking apps that have come out, uh, menstrual tracking apps. In fact, they've really proliferated. They've become very popular. But you walk us through some pros and cons of menstrual tracking apps in your book, Blood. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about what you see as the incredible pros of menstrual tracking apps and what you see as real concerns. So the pros of the apps, I would say, are the, are the way they help us actually from a research standpoint. So when the question came up, does the COVID vaccine affect the menstrual cycle? Researchers were able to mine massive databases and look at people collecting the data real time. So there's no like, I can't remember what my last day was and go back and pull the data 
and see if there was an association or not. So that's one of the massive advantages to society is all of that tracking. For somebody who wants to practice fertility awareness methods for contraception, apps can be helpful. Some are better than others. And so it's always important to, you know, think about also how much effort you want to put in because with using an app for fertility awareness method, it's not just putting in your dates. You've got to measure a temperature. You've got to check your cervical mucus. You have to do something else because if it's just using your dates, it's quite inaccurate. So, so there's that. Some people like to have a greater awareness of their menstrual cycle and they can certainly do that, but that does sort of start to border in the how helpful or not is that because there's this phenomenon of the quantified self, you know, where we're all tracking everything. And we know that with sleep, that actually people who are really into tracking their sleep, it can actually affect their sleep quality. And there have been some studies with menstrual apps showing that when a woman thought her period was supposed to come and it came at a different time with the app, she assumed her body messed up when actually it was the app that was incorrect. So you might not be learning as much about your body as you think. So that's kind of like the soft negative. The hard negative (laughs) is if you happen to live in a state where abortion is illegal, that data might be accessible. And that could be data that could end up putting you in jail. And people need to know that. You know, if you've searched online for abortifacients and your last period was six weeks ago and they know that because they have that app data, it starts to open you up. And and certainly in the book, I talk about some apps that a couple of different safety organizations would recommend um, that they don't send data to the cloud. Now, if you're in those apps, you can't participate in research and all those kinds of things, but you can also look after yourself a lot better. So you know, we're all being tracked everywhere. Yesterday, I can't remember what I was talking about. And then two seconds later on Instagram, there's that, there's the ad for the thing right there. And I was like, so you have to be super careful. And people are listening and it's a sorry state of affairs that we have to talk about it this way. But we've seen cases of people being criminalized. So you have- And that data being subpoenaed to build a case. Yeah, it's all subpoenable and, and, you know, erasing your device doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be safe again, unless you use, you know, one of the devices that the apps that keeps it all on the phone, just something to be wary of. And so in addition to the medical procedure of abortion, there have also been, and there have for, for a really long time been attacks on hormonal contraception. So I, first, if you, if you want to remind us how many are available now? There are so many different types of contraception. Options. Yeah, it's been a plethora. I mean, when I was a medical student, there was the birth control pill and the copper IUD and the Depo-Provera shot. And then we now have, in addition to the birth control pill, we have birth control pills with estrogen and without estrogen. We have copper IUD. We have hormonal IUDs. We have Nexplanon implant. We have contraceptive patches. We have a contraceptive ring. There's a contraceptive ring you leave in all year. So there's more and more and more. And choice is good. I'm all for choice. People, the more contraceptive options we have, the better. People need to think about 
how important it is for them to not be pregnant because some methods are more reliable than others. And also not everybody wants to use them for pregnancy prevention. So people might use them for control of heavy bleeding or for control of menstrual cramps. And so there's, you know, other advantages to these products as well. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a whole bunch that are here. And except for the copper IUD, they're really all an offshoot of hormonal contraception research. Yeah. And you used it to address your your menstrual diarrhea. I mean, that yes. Was- yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. It's stopping my menstrual cycle was the greatest thing I ever did. Fortunately, you know, if it was today, I would have had a menstrual coach telling me that I could eat my way to a better menstrual cycle. So one of the things that I learned was that you can take an estrogen pill, which is the most common form of hormonal contraception, right? To this day, continuously, if you want to avoid having a period entirely. So that's completely safe. And how is that possible? Like, why is it that you would not have to go through the process of ridding your body of all that buildup? So for two reasons, or a couple of reasons. So one, you're taking both estrogen and a progestin, which is like progesterone, every single day, as opposed to when you ovulate, you're only getting that progesterone half the cycle. So the lining actually has a chance to build up because you're taking the progestin from the beginning, the lining doesn't build up. So Mm -hmm. you don't get that thick decidualization. So there isn't all that tissue to come out, just doesn't develop. And then if you take the pill continuously and you don't have a break, there's no withdrawal of hormones. So the lining just gets thinner and thinner and thinner, and there's not really anything there. So that's why you can take it every single day. And, uh, you know, there's no like week off forever. Yeah. Why have a period? I'm sure if you surveyed a female OBGYNs, like probably 2% have periods. I mean, I'm just making that up off the top of my head, but uh, like, why? I mean, if you want to, people like it. Absolutely. There's people who like it because they like it. There's people who don't want to change their biology. There's people who like the reassurance that they're not pregnant. So those are all valid reasons. But, you know, when you're scrubbing in a six hour surgery, it's really nice not to have to worry about blood running down your legs. Yeah. Or if you have to go in for a procedure that took a really long time to schedule and you can't do that procedure if you had Right. Exactly. You know, or just the modern convenience or the expense of menstrual products. So there's all different kinds of reasons. And I like to be open to all reasons for people. People have terrible PMS. Why have those hormonal fluctuations? You take the medication if it works for you. People who have painful periods. So, you know, there's all different ways those medications can help. And of course, if you take the medications that don't have estrogen in them, like the Nexplanon implant or the hormonal IUD, the lining, again, just never builds up. So you mentioned menstrual products, and there's also been, or historically through time, but it still sort of rears its head frequently, attacks on menstrual products like tampons. So I mentioned we hear about attacks on hormonal contraception, you know, sort of rears up periodically as well. And we also hear it about, in particular, right, tampons and toxic shock syndrome. Do you see those things as driven by the same sort of ideas or agendas? Yeah, I personally do. They're rooted in misogyny. You know, scaring people without good information is a tool of the patriarchy, right? So you should be scared. You, and, and when you think about these things, the messaging is always your body needs to be in its purest state. And so you don't want to be on the birth control pill because your body needs to be pure. 
Okay, well, that's really awful. Pure by whose definition? What, what do you mean by purity? I mean, I know what you mean by purity. You can't put something in your vagina. Well, your vagina needs to be pure. What does that mean? That means like it needs to be virginal. So all of these things are like this return to this sort of pure natural state at the heart of them. And, you know, this idea that you're going to take a little piece of information and then use it to scare people is to me, again, doesn't benefit anybody. That would be what someone who wants to control people would do, right? Use fear as a weapon of control. And, you know, there are sometimes droplets of truth in these things, which makes it harder. So for example, there was a thing called toxic shock syndrome. I mean, it still exists, but it hit its peak when I was like 13 or 14. I remember being on the news. We were all like, all going to die. Like it was really scary. People were dying. And the reason that it happened was lack of government regulations. This was before the government actually decided they were going to regulate how tampons were made and what could go into them. And so, yeah, that's, that's why we need government regulations because it turns out putting a super, super, super absorbent product that can trap oxygen in the vagina is a perfect way to make toxic shock syndrome. Now that we know that, and now that we have regulation, it's much safer. You can get toxic shock syndrome from a burn. You can get it from a cut on your leg, but you never hear people scaring people about that. Even though the incidence of non-menstrual toxic shock syndrome now is about the same as menstrual toxic shock syndrome because we have safer tampons. So you can tell us relatively definitively how much we have to worry about TSS or toxic shock syndrome. It's just so incredibly rare that we don't essentially. Well, Everybody looks at risk differently. So, you know, it's, it is a, so using a tampon is incredibly safe. The chance of having it, we're talking about the same as a lightning strike, right? So this is what we're talking about, but people look at risk differently. I mean, there's people who won't fly on airplanes because they're afraid of an airplane crash, even though getting an airplane is safer than driving in a car. So that's why I think it's important to have the data so people can look at it. And in my experience, when people read through it all and they actually see the numbers compared to other things, they're like, oh, I thought it was like a 10% risk. So people in their mind had this different idea. While we're on the topic of menstrual products like tampons, there is one thing that you'd love to see changed, and that is how we categorize these yeah. products in a store. They're frequently called feminine hygiene products. I can guess why you don't like it, but, but spell it out for us. Why yeah. that bother you? So first of all, it's not a sign of being feminine, right? It's just that you need to catch the blood. And not everybody who menstruates sees themselves as feminine. There are trans people who menstruate. There's non-binary people who menstruate. And also, you know what? When I was 14 and menstruating, I didn't think of myself as feminine. I was, you know, I like, I didn't think of myself as like a woman, womanly, like, like it's, I wish they had had dinosaurs on tampon boxes. That would have been like way cooler. I'd have been like, I want the one with the T-Rex on it. You know, so I think that it evokes something that we shouldn't really be linking to menstruation. Also, you're not, it's, you're not unhygienic. You're not dirty. You need something to catch the blood. If we can talk about you know, tissue paper, if we can talk about toilet paper in ways that don't involve things like femininity and hygiene, then why can't we do the same for for menstrual products? I guess what they are, they're just menstrual products. And again, I think the euphemisms hurt people because the end thing of a euphemism is, well, if you can't say the word, it's because it's shameful, but why is it shameful to need something so you don't bleed on your clothes? Are there new products coming out that you're excited about that you like that are supposed to make that often uncomfortable, a little bit annoying, even though it is the wheel of drives humanity menstrual cycle. (laughs) 
Oh yeah. No, I'm not saying like, like having the wheel that drives humanity doesn't, that that's not like always a walk in the park. So exactly. Kind of more like how society should be respecting it a little bit more, but, um, but yeah, are we innovating in ways that, that you like? Are there some things that we're doing that you're excited to see? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I mean, this isn't a medical innovation, but I think menstrual underwear is fantastic. This idea that, you know, you can have super absorbent underwear, so you don't have to worry about a leak. So especially like you're 12, 13, you get your first period. It might be very irregular at the beginning. You don't know when the next one's going to come. So this idea that people can have other ways that are easier for them. I think that's fantastic. I think there's been a, a greater acceptance of menstrual cups and menstrual discs. I think that's great too. Again, I'm all for options. The more options people have, the better they can find things that work for them. So I'm excited about that. I think there's been a bit of a breakthrough using menstrual blood for testing. Thinking about it as previously a discard product that you can now, I think I read, and I might be incorrect, but I think I just read that one company got approval, I think, to test for something for menstrual blood. And I don't want to say what it was because I can't remember off the top of my head. So that's kind of cool. You have to think about, well, how would that work? You know, so then you can avoid a finger stick. You can avoid going to a lab. Is it really going to be more cost effective or those tests more? I don't think we know that answer. But unless somebody studies it, then we're not going to know. Is it possible that one day, instead of even having to put a brush in your vagina to test for HPV, you could basically take a tampon and put it in something? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I think there's all kinds of really cool potential technologies that could come from that. Um, The thing that I think really need to see more of is more research into things like endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome, given the massive numbers of people that these affect. And then also given, especially with endometriosis, how really little we understand from a basic science perspective, like you can't design therapies unless you actually know a little bit more biologically about the disease. Yeah. What are the latest treatments for endometriosis? Well, they are the same treatments that, well, there's maybe one addition. So using hormonal medications to suppress ovulation, using the medications progestins that that act like progesterone, but they're stronger to try to suppress the growth of the tissue, using medications to turn off the menstrual cycle at the level of the brain that are called GnRH agonists or antagonists, and they stop ovulation. There's surgery as well, removing tissue. You know, that's also for many people, a very important part of um, of their treatment. And then also we're seeing some work with aromatase inhibitors, which are actually drugs used for breast cancer. Um, But sometimes endometriosis can uh, evade using, so you can shut off the menstrual cycle. You can make the ovaries. You can say just like menopause, there's no hormone and yet the tissue still grows. And that's because for some people, and the tissue and endometriosis can actually start to develop its own estrogen because estrogen feeds it. So it can actually develop the enzyme to produce estrogen. So when you use an aromatase inhibitor, you can shut it off at the level of the, of the endometriosis. And finally, we're seeing some work with a class of drugs called selective estrogen receptor modulators, which also are used for breast cancer. And they're also sometimes used for osteoporosis prevention as well. And that there may be some of these drugs that are called SERMs that actually could help suppress endometriosis as well. So that's exciting research. A lot of that's just case reports, really new stuff, but super exciting. 
Yeah. Well, you anticipated one of our audience members' questions. One of the audience members asked, can menstrual blood be used for blood testing? So you touched on that. There is another question that an audience member has. Dr. Jen, they write, you are very active and vocal on social media to combat misinformation about women's health. But on the flip side, so many young people are getting their health information from non-medical professionals. How can they be held accountable for promoting unsafe and false information? Unfortunately, I don't believe there's any way to hold them accountable. I think that the rise of especially menstrual disinformation on social media in the last two or three years has been astronomical and actually changed how I wrote the book. I added a lot more myths. I added a lot more about contraception um, because of that. And I think the the best piece of advice that I can give here is to teach everybody how to use social media. And if you see a piece of information, you have to disengage and you have to try to find a verifiable source. There's no influencer on social media who has a secret to medicine. There's no one who has a special diet, who has a special supplement, who has a special anything, because if the research were there, we'd all be using it. You'd be able to find the story on public radio. You'd be able to find the story in the Washington Post. You'd be able to find the story in the New York Times and San Francisco Chronicle. If it were such an amazing thing, the supplement could fix this thing. Everybody would know about it, not just an influencer who sells it for $49.99. So I think it's really hard because we all want there to be a magic pill. Look, I want to be able to take a pill every day so I don't have to exercise. I love that. I'm going to be really honest. I hate exercising, but I do it because I know it's so healthy for me. Like I really hate it, but I do it. <laughs> um, and so I think that it's just really important to teach people. And if you see disinformation, you just need to block the person because if you engage, if you keep watching, you're telling the algorithm you want to see more of that. And we know it takes just five exposures to something that's ridiculous to get people to start to believe it. Five exposures. Wow. So that explains a lot, a lot of, about our current environment. It does. <laughs> well, this person would like to know what is the most shocking or strangest myth that you've heard about menstruation? The most shocking myth. I mean, I think the idea that there are still people in this day and age on social media saying that the menstrual cycle is a way to get rid of toxins. Because there are. There are people who've written very popular books. There are people with very large social media accounts who are saying that. And first of all, humans don't make toxins. We don't have toxins. Toxins are like snake venom or Botox. They or what you get from E. coli. They come from other sources. So we don't have toxins to get rid of. And if you have a toxin making you sick, you probably need to be in the ICU. So just putting it out there. If the menstrual cycle got rid of toxins, then what would happen when you become menopausal? Like, again, we talked about that. Um, but of course they have a detox to sell. So this idea that there are still people in 2024 talking about the menstrual cycle as a detox, I'm just, I, I can't get over that. Another audience member wants to know, is there any evidence connecting birth control RX prescriptions to how one experiences menopause? Does taking the pill or a particular pill correlate with more manageable and or difficult menopause symptoms? So we use the pill to control a lot of symptoms of the menopause transition, the time leading up. And many people in my experience who take it have a great transition because they don't have that hormonal chaos. So bleeding abnormalities, a big problem in the menopause transition, the pill can treat that for many people. Some people have a worsening of their PMS 
I can treat that. The pill, if it's got estrogen, is also going to prevent hot flashes from most people. So I'm not saying every single person needs to be on the pill at all, but if you happen to need contraception and hormonal contraception is safe for you, which for most healthy people it is, you can take it till the age of 55 if you want to, as long as your blood pressure is fine. Well, this question is, it is important for girls and women to understand their bodies and menstruation. Why is it important for boys and men to learn about menstruation in the same way? Yeah, it absolutely is. First of all, they're all here because of the menstrual cycle. So they should <laughs> learn about it. They profited from it. Secondly, if we want to have an equal society, maybe it'll be useful for them to know about it. Some doctor replied to me today on social media that he'd read an excerpt from my book and he had no idea that menstrual diarrhea could be that disabling, you know, because I wrote in the book, I would have to go to the bathroom 15 times a day. And he'd say, well, I would change somebody's diabetes medication for way less than that. So to understand the gravity of the impact for some people, maybe that might help with some understanding. So, you know, if you've profited from menstruation and you probably care for someone who menstruates, you might have a mother, you might have a sister, you might have a friend, you might have a significant other, you might have a daughter. So you probably know someone who menstruates and wouldn't it be nice to be able to know more about what's happening to their body? Another question is, what do you think can be done to work towards increasing the budget for good endometriosis research? Well, you know, I've heard the Biden administration is trying to make an emphasis on women's health care funding at the federal level. So I think we need more funding. And I think that what really needs to happen also, though, is thinking about how we're going to do this cohesively. You know, what labs are all working on the basic science? How can we how can we get some funding at a federal level so we don't have four different people doing research that might be complementary, but if they actually were able to speak more together, they could actually do more. So I'm just going to say it takes money. And the best example that I can give is in January, 2020, the genome for COVID was sequenced. And in December, 2020, we had a vaccine. And that's what happens when you throw money and smart people at a problem. Well, this uh, audience member wants to know, now that the book is out, is there something that you wish you could have included or added more information about? Oh my gosh. So if I had my way, it would have been about twice as big, but you, know, you have to be able to lift a book. It has to be affordable. You can't have a book that's too heavy to lift up to read. So, you know, I wanted to include more about other medical conditions that are impacted by the menstrual cycle. I wanted to include more about some of the ramifications of after pregnancy. I mean, there are so many myths I could have gone into, but at some point you have to stop. So those are some things I wish I'd been able to write more about, but I got another book coming out, so maybe I can get more in there. You say pretty emphatically, the pill is safer than pregnancy, that abortion is safer than pregnancy. You know, explain how, right? How pregnancy is something that is more dangerous, something that so many people experience. Um, right. But also, I was curious if, I mean, you always speak with clarity and frankly, but I do wonder if it is driven by this political moment as well to, to make that point. You know, when I lived in Canada, I did my residency in Canada when abortion wasn't, there was no law. 
It's just a medical procedure. So we didn't have that kind of overhang. And it still was a useful way to explain it when people are worried about risk. And you say, well, this is the risk from the pill and this is the risk from pregnancy, just for perspective. So you can understand, you know, there's no black box warning on pregnancy, but there really should be. So it's a useful way in the office to talk about it. But when you're talking about it more in our political landscape, it becomes really important because when people are denied access to abortion, then they also now have to run the gauntlet of maternal mortality. And if they're African-American, if they live in a rural area, if they're Hispanic, they are now facing all of these other issues on top of it. So it's not just pregnancy itself, but then the impact of endemic racism on the practice of medicine and the impact of poverty All of these things have an additional impact. If you can't get access to good prenatal care because of where you live, because all of the doctors have left, that also has an issue. If you can't get access to prenatal care because you can't afford the gas to get in the car to drive to the visits, right? So all of these things add other layers of complexity on top of the baseline risk of maternal mortality, which is why in some countries the rates are much lower than they are in the United States, right? If you're in a country with universal health care, you've got a different issue. Um, so there's there's all these issues. There's also a testimony to how safe the pill is and how safe abortion is because these things have been researched and they've been studied and money has been put into them so we know. So we're seeing this kind of combination of things. We're seeing you know, the U.S. having the worst maternal mortality rate. And we're seeing these therapies that are in abortion, medical abortions or a procedure abortion, birth control, all being so incredibly safe because we've insisted on that at a consumer level. And so I think that never before, one, has it been important for people to understand just how risky pregnancy is, this idea that it's no big deal to be pregnant. Never mind risks of blood clots, risks of bleeding to death. There's risk of incontinence afterwards. There's risk of having long-term consequences from having had gestational diabetes. It goes on and on and on. So there's all kinds of risks that people bear, and it should be their choice whether or not they bear those risks. And you know, I think that people who will never bear those risks shouldn't have really a say in that. Yeah, though, I I think it is a pretty significant reframing of our society and culture's understanding of pregnancy and how we treat it as natural and just something we should all experience in this culture. But the dangers of it compounded by our lack of basically infrastructure at a very basic level to support a healthy and safe pregnancy, as well as the other issues that you discussed with regard to racism and you know geographic, where we live determining so much of, of our health. It is a really interesting way of framing, I think, the discussion that we're continuing to have about the ethics of forcing, forced birth, essentially. I think it's really important also to call it that. It's forced birth. The pro-life position is for people to have safe pregnancies when they want to have them because maternal mortality is a big issue. And the statistics continue to become more frightening in that arena. Another thing that you really draw our attention to is that you say science is at an alarming inflection point with regard to misinformation and lies, how they've gained such a foothold that it's become harder to distinguish between truth and falsehood or lies And earlier we had the question about, can you hold people who peddle snake oil, essentially, right, accountable? And you were saying that it's really difficult. I'm wondering if you could just take a moment to talk about the steps that we can take to determine 
if what we're looking at, if what we're reading is accurate or disinformation, because I'm sure you have a very um, fine-tuned sense for that as you <laughs> as you look and see what is out there uh, on social media and the internet. Yeah, so it can be very hard. In fact, there's a lot of data that tells us that when people do their own research, they often end up more misinformed because... Mm-hmm. When I do my research, I know right away, oh, that site's garbage, that site's garbage, that journal's garbage. I'm not going to read that stuff, but it's because my area of expertise. If it was about cars, I wouldn't know, right? So I would be just as vulnerable. So I think that there's a, that's kind of underlies the problem. So I would say that be wary of grand statements that sound too good to be true. In general, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. If there is something that is linked in any way with being anti-vaccine, then you can almost guarantee that everything else is incorrect. Be mindful of what is being sold to you. If the person giving you health information is also selling you supplements, then that should really be cause for concern. If behind me, I had a wall of birth control pills that had my name on, they were Jen Gunter's pill, and I was selling those to you, you would be right. And I was talking about everything we're talking about. You would rightly think, maybe we shouldn't trust everything she says. So supplements are just unstudied pharmaceuticals, unregulated pharmaceuticals. So be mindful of that. If someone is selling those, there's bias in the same way if someone is selling a pharmaceutical, there's bias. Find good sources for fact-checking. So one tip that I give everybody for a gynecology thing or an obstetrical thing is you put your question in the Google search bar and then put ACOG. That stands for the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And that will force the Google ranking to bring things to the top that have ACOG in it. So that will help because you know what snake oil people are really good at? They're good at fixing Google's algorithm. So their stuff comes up first. So you're going to beat the algorithm by putting in the acronym for the medical professional society that you're interested in. The same thing for the CDC. You can also search the question and put fact check. Lots of places actually do good fact checks. And if you put that in the Google search, it will come up. And also look on traditional news sites like public radio, like the New York Times, like other sites and and search within those sites to see if you see other stuff. So you want to look kind of for independent verification, but it can be really hard. And, you know, and when we talk about what are the ramifications, Andrew Wakefield's still around getting paid to give talks. You know, the guy who did the original paper that was full of disinformation about the measles vaccine. And he's still around and measles is back, right? We're all hearing about how there's all these measles cases, which is like, it's a catastrophic illness. So yeah, I, you know, I don't know how to hold people accountable. I mean, in rare cases like his, people lose their medical license, but it takes a lot to lose your medical license, like a lot. Well, your book, Blood, is offering a corrective against a lot of that misinformation that's out there. And I want to thank you so much for for being on the Commonwealth Club and talking about it today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm just so excited to to birth this out into the world (laughs) and hopefully to be a source for people to to look up good information and, and to understand what's not only happening to their bodies, but understand the information that's being sent to them so they can be a better consumer. Dr. Jen Gunter's book is Blood, the Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation. You can pick up a copy of the book at your local bookstore. I'm Mina Kim. Thank you and take care.
You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work. Help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel program to exciting domestic and international destinations. When you're in the Bay Area, please join us for live events at our home on the waterfront. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.